Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hi, I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive at the City Club. This week, we're doing something a little different. We want to share with you something we've been working on for the past few months. It's a program called Democracy Unchained. Since September, we've been putting out a weekly program of interviews and presentations all about what different people think our democracy needs right now to make it stronger and more resilient. The idea for this series of programs grew out of a conference on the state of American democracy. That was back in 2017 in Oberlin, Ohio, when we were all trying to just understand what was happening to our nation. Then in 2019, we collaborated with some partners on a book on the same topic. And that book was called Democracy Unchained, How to Rebuild Government for the People. A few months ago, we started working with those same partners to do what we do convene conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. We've heard from some leading writers and thinkers, advocates and theologians on voting rights, on the influence of money in politics, on state-level governance, and also on the moral foundations of democracy. This is all about how we can rebuild this democratic republic of ours, not just so that everybody can participate, but so it can actually handle the big challenges ahead. Challenges like climate change, dismantling systemic racism, maybe even another pandemic. So today we want to bring you some of our favorite segments from these programs. In one of our first episodes, we asked this simple question, is democracy worth saving? You know, we take democracy for granted sometimes. Jill Lepore writes for The New Yorker and teaches American history at Harvard. She has been looking for lessons from what she says is the last time this question was on the minds of citizens across the nation. My name is Jill Lepore. I'm a professor of American history at Harvard. I am also a staff writer for The New Yorker. Uh, I host a podcast called The Last Archive. I recently wrote a book called These Truths, A History of the United States. Democracy is a form of government, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. So we all know that it's a representative form of government. We elect people to represent our interests. But we also elect people to represent all of our interests, not just our private interests. We represent, we elect people to represent the common interests, the public good. And that's in many ways a much harder decision because how do you figure out what is in the public interest? What is the common good? That's the question that you have to ask of yourself in a democracy. And it's a really hard question. And it means that there's a fundamentally different element of democracy that we don't talk about enough, which is democracy demands inquiry. In order to know how to cast a good vote, how to be well represented, you have to inquire about the state of the world. Democracy is a fundamentally empirical effort. So it's not just a system of government. It's not even just a system of representation. It requires participation and deliberation. And then it requires inquiry. And one kind of inquiry that democracy demands is an inquiry into the past it really requires the study of history to be a good citizen. You need to think about how did we get here so that you can try to decide what would be a good place to go. And then you can figure out who that's running for office or whether you are running for office 
or whether you, what you want to tell someone who's been elected to office, what would be the way to get to the place that you think we all ought to go? Um, that Those are historical questions. And uh, I think it's important to not forget how important the past is to the future. That is a system of knowledge on which our system of rule depends. So I spent a lot of time this past winter thinking about the last time that democracy nearly died, uh, when democracies were falling all over the world. Because it was a time not unlike this time. This was the 1930s. And, uh, you know, you can't really pick up a magazine or turn on the TV today and not see someone asking, what is the future of democracy? Or, you know, counting the falling of democracies. Or what it is, uh, what institutions are in crisis and what that tells us about the state of our democracy or democracies around the world. But the same thing was true in the 1930s when people saw fascism on the rise and communism on the rise and wondered whether a liberal state, a liberal nation state that guarantees constitutionally the equal rights of its citizens, whether it always delivers on that promise is another question and a really important one. But those guarantees, whether that could endure um, the economic devastation and the crisis of the 1930s and the Great Depression. Mussolini said the liberal state is destined to perish in the 1930s, that all the political experiments of the day were experiments in authoritarianism. Um, under such a time of crisis, people thought the only way to proceed was to grant an enormous amount of power to a single figure who, who alone could fix it. Uh, so Americans debated this a lot in the 1930s, and one of the ways they debated this was by asking questions about the way democracy already hadn't lived up to its promise. Um, and I got really interested in those critiques. Like at a moment when democracy was so imperiled, who were the people who said, is it even worth saving what we have? So I think about an essay written by W.E.B. Du Bois uh, in 1931, in which he, he said that unless the United States freed itself of its enthrallment uh, to wealth, that American democracy would fail. If it is going to use this power to force the world into color prejudice and race antagonism, if it is going to use, its its, use it to manufacture millionaires, increase the rule of wealth, and break down democratic government everywhere, if it is going increasingly to stand for reaction, fascism, fascism, white supremacy, and imperialism, if it is going to promote war and not peace, then America will go the way of the Roman Empire. Du Bois wrote in, in 1931, a very searing indictment of the state of American democracy as essentially defending white supremacy and the rule of wealth, um, asking for uh, a, a, a complete renewal of, and reimagining of democracy if it was to proceed. Or think of you know other big critics in the 1930s. In 1936, the great historian Mary Ritter Beard warned that American democracy would in vain fight its ruthless enemies, war, fascism, ignorance, poverty, scarcity, unemployment, sadistic criminality, racial persecution, man's lust for power, and woman's miserable trailing in the shadow of his frightful ways, unless Americans could imagine a future democracy in which women would no longer be barred from positions of political leadership. This is at a time not long after the passage of the 19th Amendment when women, white women could vote, uh, but we're still not being welcomed into office and still not even getting enough support to run for office. So the thing that I think is really important to remember about that historical inquiry is one of its lessons is that the best way to strengthen a democracy is in fact to criticize it. That democracies depend on that kind of criticism. That democracies rely upon dissent, even in times of crisis. Even in times of crisis, from both the left and the right, it is important to be willing to think about what are the shortcomings of the democracy. That is 
the struggle, the democracy, the struggle to maintain a democracy is what keeps a democracy alive. But of everything that I read in the 1930s, in this moment, not altogether different from our own when people all around the world asked about the future of democracy, is the lead essay in a series that was published by the New Republic. In 1937, the New Republic started publishing a series called The Future of Democracy. Uh, and they asked each of the contributors, do you think that political democracy is now on the wane? And my favorite essay is the first one by, by an Italian political philosopher who objected to the question. And he said, you know, to ask whether political democracy is on the wane is, is um, he says, I call this kind of question meteorological. It's like asking, do you think it's going to rain today? Had I better take my umbrella? When in fact, the problem is that political problems are not like the weather. They're not external forces beyond our control. We make the weather. You don't look outside at this political storm that's going on in the United States and around the world right now and say, do I need to wear a rain hat or my parka? Do I need an umbrella? Your job as a citizen in a democracy is to realize we have made that weather. Your job is to go out there and stop the rain. For our republic to thrive and to be truly inclusive, we're going to have to face some of the realities of our founding, the taking of land from indigenous people and chattel slavery. Now, the idea of reparations can be hard for some to conceive of, but what if it's been done before? In our fourth episode, writer Bakari Kitwana moderated a conversation with advocate Dr. Amokar Shabazz and attorney Deidria Farmer-Paleman, who Kitwana called one of the unsung heroes in the push for reparations. Uh, Deidria, I want to bring you into the conversation. Um, you, in, in, in my mind, are one of the unsung heroes of the reparations movement, uh, who often gets, gets overlooked, um, bringing these significant cases that resulted in $20 million settlement from American corporations to in, in regards to reparations. Tell us, what do you feel is the significance of this recent bill? From a media perspective, I think the discussion of reparations uh, that we were able to hear during the hearings was uh, an opportunity to educate the public more about the history of slavery and, and what in general we feel is owed. I mean, of course, the bill is about uh, studying and, and uh, the, the, the impact of the transatlantic slave trade and slavery on, on the slave descendants and uh, descendants of enslaved Africans. So we were able to at least begin that discussion again. And once again, you know, this, we've been talking about this issue for quite a number of years. And I feel uh, that this discussion during the hearings uh, was a great media blast. There were great media personalities, Danny Glover, Tiny E.C. Coates, um, quite a number of, you know, uh, very well-known people sat on the panel and, and gave voice on the issue. And so if any time we can stir up a discussion around uh, this issue, it's better uh, for the public and, and for all of us. Deidre, if you can, um, and I say unsung, because I feel like in many ways, what you did brought the, the conversation and the impact of reparations into a reality that we've never seen. So if you can, talk about how you got involved in this, um, in this reparations movement and talk a little bit about the cases. Well, I, you know, I started this work as a law student 
1997, I decided to focus on a case that, uh, that uh, basically did not bring in the government as a, a defendant because I felt uh, after doing research, I saw that the, the government required uh, uh, sovereign immunity in order for us to access them through litigation. And so I focused on corporations. Um, when I graduated from law school, I made an effort to reach out to companies to ask them directly to pay reparations. And a, a few of them um, were responsive. Edna in particular promised that they would do something and then they backed down. Um, it took about two years to really generate steam around the idea, but um, legislators came on board right away, uh, passing slavery ever disclosure laws in the same year that I reached out, and that was the year 2000. And um, by 2002, we filed the case against, uh, in, in total, uh, it was about 20 different companies coming from various uh, walks of uh, business life, um, blue chip companies, insurance companies like Aetna, New York Life Insurance Company, uh, railroad companies like CSX, Norfolk Southern, um, banks like uh, JP Morgan Chase and uh, Bank of America. Well, at the time it was Fleet Boston Financial Corporation. And what, what we found is that all of them had played some role in, in the enslavement of Africans through financing the transatlantic slave trade, uh, receiving funds from illegal slave trading, or actually um, ensuring the lives of enslaved Africans with the slave owners as the beneficiaries. So this really laid the groundwork, this information laid the groundwork for a lot of what we're seeing today. For example, some of our defendants, for Lloyds of London, for example, has recently come forward without even being provoked, um, but afraid of what we're seeing with movements in the street, democracy in action, Black Lives Matters, expressing their demand for justice overall. And they've come forward concerned that they will be basically torn down by the uh, demonstrators. And they are offering to, to give something, to pay reparations in some kind of form. Can you talk a little bit about some of the specific ties? Let's say if you picked a, a company like JP Morgan or Aetna, what, what right. were some things that stand out in your mind that was a specific tie to, uh, to, to slavery? Well, okay. Well, uh, J.P. Morgan actually, um, uh, actually, when people wanted to engage in purchasing of slaves or to finance their loans uh, to you know, expand their uh, plantations, J.P. Morgan's predecessor bank would uh, need collateral, and so enslaved Africans would be that collateral. Um, in addition to that, there's documentation that was shared with me by Aetna that showed that J.P. Morgan Chase, one of their predecessor banks, uh, had uh, engaged in writing slave policies. Um, a company like New York Life Insurance Company, of their first 100 slave policies, one third of them were written on the lives of enslaved Africans. And what this did was it allowed the employment of enslaved people in ultra hazardous capacities. You know, at a certain point, the slave trade closed. And so, uh, you know, you could, not, you could not get new humans transported into the United States. And so the value increased in the, in, the, in the person. And so these slave policies were important to keep <clears throat> industry going. For example, like uh, coal mining. Enslaved Africans were used in coal mines and very often they died in those coal mines. In fact, 
the first policy that was paid out by New York Life Insurance Company was paid out on the life of an enslaved African who had died in a coal mine. So this is, you know, these are the types of things that they I think made it's really, possible. Yeah, I think it's so important, nation. those specifics, because I think a lot of times when we have these conversations, the detractors are just so very dismissive. They don't really know the history, but yeah. they try to pretend like, oh, it happened a long time ago. It didn't really involve anybody. It's almost like a continuation of that dehumanizing process. Dr. Shabazz, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the George Floyd uh, protests and how that might have impacted some of this conversation. The New York Times reported that in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing by police in Minneapolis, over 2,000 US cities had protests uh, against this. Many of these protests, uh, unprecedented in many ways in our history, involved a lot of white Americans. And we're starting to see some, of a mo some movement in this kind of public opinion. Um, I remember back in the 90s when Larry Bobo did the study and asked the question of reparations to blacks and whites, it was almost like a complete flip. 90% of whites against it, 10% of, of, of uh, 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 I mean, and 90% and, you know, of blacks for it. You know what I mean? So I'm curious if you can talk about how these recent George Floyd protests uh, have impacted the, the public opinion because we're seeing cities and universities and states like California recently uh, passing measures. I think the, the graphic, uh, brutal murder of George Floyd, those eight minutes and 40 some seconds, uh, so graphically illustrating the, uh, the sickness that, uh, of anti-Black racism that continues to uh, uh, afflict this country like a cancer um, really is a nodal point in, uh, in, in this struggle. I think it has awakened uh, many more uh, people uh, to, to what's going on, especially uh, white Americans. Uh, many more are, have been awakened than ever before. And especially from, from our younger folk of all, of all colors, of all backgrounds. I think there's a, there's a, a coming to a conviction that the, uh, the, 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 the piecemeal uh, reforms, the chipping around the edges of, of the systemic nature of, of racism, uh, the structural, the way that the social structure itself continues to be overdetermined by white supremacy. I think there's, there's, a, there's a, a realization that the, uh, uh, the, the minor reforms, oh, if we just had body cameras or if we, we had more sensitivity sessions and trainings of, uh, of, of law enforcement or of, of the politicians or of whatever, that, uh, that that's going to be enough. Uh, that that's out the door now. But clearly we understand that, yes, even a black president isn't enough. Uh, black faces in high places is not the answer. That it, it, it's really about a deep, meaningful, structural and change and cultural paradigm shift 
that's necessary. And I think there's that, that the, the murder of George Floyd is a real nodal point, I think. And, and again, in connection with everything else going right. on, Robert Arbery, the Breonna Taylor in Louisville, with all of these other cases out there constantly hitting you one after the other, yes, a real nodal point has happened. And, I, and, and finally, I think the connection to that is, is that it has moved the discussion of reparations into this window of possibility. There's a sociologist, some of the, in the academic community, we've been talking about when, when things move into this Overton window, it moves into this, this window of possibility away from being uh, the, the unacceptable, um, uh, crazy, uh, fringe, uh, you know, a, a kind of unspeakable idea uh, but it's moved away from that end of the spectrum of, of discourse to now it's clearly in the window that this is, this is something reasonable to talk about. This is something uh, very rational and reasonable to bring into the policy fora to discuss how do we do this? How do we implement this? How can, can this be a part of a real and meaningful solution. Democracy can be a fragile thing, and it's often under threat, as we've seen in recent election cycles. Tim Snyder teaches history at Yale University. He's an author as well, but he doesn't work on U.S. history. Instead, he works in Europe, and he spends a lot of time writing and thinking about how democracies can fall apart, and what happens when some see the nation's leader as more important than the nation itself or its citizens. He joined us in the second episode of Democracy Unchained. My name is Timothy Snyder. I'm a historian. And our task together for the next few minutes is to think about fascism. Now, when we hear the word fascism, we might think of places that are far away or times that are long ago. But I think it's quite important for all of us and perhaps above all Americans to be thinking about fascism as something that can arrive anytime and any place. Fascism is an attitude. It's an attitude that we can try to recognize. It's an attitude that has three parts. The first part is that you take globalization personally. You don't think that globalization is about economics or about technology or about new capacities to do things. You think globalization is about some group or some individual which is acting against your country or you personally. The second part of the fascist attitude is that you prefer the will over the facts. It doesn't matter what's actually out there in the world. What matters is how I feel about it. And more importantly, it matters how my leader can make me feel about it. That's the third part of the attitude. Fascism puts the person above the law. This is what's called the leader principle. It doesn't matter what the law says. My leader can do what my leader wants to do because it's my leader who explains to me uh, how globalization works against me. It's my leader who explains to me how I should be feeling. Fascism also has tactics, tactics that we can recognize, become familiar with if we want to resist them. One tactic is to define an enemy which is both inside and outside. 
somehow within the country there's a group and that group is not really part of the nation, but that group is also connected to some hostile force outside of the nation. The second tactic is the ritualistic use of language. Language is not about describing the world, it's about defining the world. It's about telling you who those enemies are. It's about finding those short slogans, those three-part slogans, bang, 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 that tell us who we are and who's outside and who's the enemy. In politics, the basic tactic, especially at the beginning, is a regime of exception. The claim that something unexpected is happening, we just have to suspend the rules for a moment, and finally everything will be all right. But what fascism is in practice is a sustained regime of exception. If you let them suspend the rules for a moment, then the rules stay suspended. So let's take a step back and think about Nazi Germany. Think about Nazi Germany in broad strokes, where it came from, what it had to do with globalization, and what it teaches us about our own globalization. The first globalization is what the Nazis were reacting to. The first globalization, a globalization of empire, where all the space in the world seemed to have been taken up. The Germans didn't seem to have their own place in it. Hitler's basic argument in Mein Kampf was to say, aha, there's no space left for us. We're like a species that doesn't have a habitat. We have to struggle. In other words, Hitler defined an ecological disaster. He defined politics in ecological terms. And he wasn't entirely wrong. It was a much riskier world back then. Hunger was much more present back then, even for relatively prosperous societies. He continued, principles, universal laws, ethics are just a way to lose. If you believe in any kind of rule, any kind of morality, that just means that your mind has been taken over by the Jews. That was the form that his anti-Semitism took. His answer to this challenge is what he called Lebensraum, living space. We have to treat ourselves like a species. We have to behave heartlessly, ruthlessly. There are no rules. There are no laws. There is no ethics. We have to survive and therefore everything is justified. We have to take land from others. We are now in a second globalization. And of course, I don't want to say that history will repeat itself. No historian would say that. What I would like to say is that if we look at the history of Nazi Germany a bit more deeply in this way, as a certain reaction to a sense of ecological threat, we'll be better informed and better able to rescue our own sense of law and our own democracy and our own freedoms as the threats to us grow greater in the decades that are coming. So we are now in a second globalization. Hitler's globalization, the imperial globalization is past. We're in a second globalization and we face the same sense that things are closing in, that there isn't space, or perhaps more specifically or more accurately, that there isn't time. Um, we feel like we don't have time because of global warming. And the current politics of the United States, horribly, are designed to consume time. By making global warming worse, we make the disaster come closer, and we make ourselves angrier, more worried, and more anxious. We are doing something very strange. By avoiding the science, um, by not addressing the problem directly, we're actually making the conflict come closer. And here I want to point out a surprising but unavoidable resemblance between what we do and what Hitler and the Nazis did. Hitler had a very specific attitudes towards science. Hitler thought that what science told us is that we have to compete. Um, this is what uh, you know, academics or others would call social Darwinism. What he thought was that 
the science brought us a law, and the law was a law of competition. Whatever happened was right. Um, the strong have to survive, and that's really all that you need to know. He was not interested in science in the sense of something that could provide a universal solution. The ecological problem of his day, the problem of hunger, could actually be addressed with technology, but he was not interested in that. More than that, he said, anyone who believes in universal science, in science that can rescue humanity, is basically a brain slave of the Jews. Any universal idea, including science, is for, for Hitler Jewish. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, we too, or at least some of us, are denying that there are universal scientific solutions. We too, when we think about global warming, are paying too little attention to fusion, to alternative energies, to the things which could actually transform things for everyone and for the better. And we too, although still in a minor key, obviously, and not so intensely, we too, when we think scientifically, quote unquote, we tend to accept social Darwinist ideas. So the question, to bring this to a close, is how do we make the second globalization different and better than the first? If we understand that we are facing threats and we are having reactions which are comparable to the threats of a century ago, and the reactions might be similar to the, to, to the reactions a century ago, what do, we, what do we do with this knowledge? Of course, we have to recognize, as I said at the beginning, the tactics of fascists. We have to work against, as I said at the beginning, the attitudes of fascists. But there's also something else. There's the recognition of practical universals. Moral universals, that is to say, move away from the idea that everything has to be a competition, but also practical universals. The idea that there is, there are scientific solutions which can, which can change the way we feel about politics and which can open up the future. Nazi ideas started from the notion that the future is closed and therefore dramatic, desperate, and murderous action is necessary. We have to make sure that our attitudes about morals and our attitudes about technology create a sense that the future is open. That's the best way to avoid that kind of tragic and horrible politics. A functioning democracy requires something of all of us. Eric Liu is the co-founder of Citizen University. That's a national effort to build the kind of civic culture where all Americans can and do participate. He spoke at the City Club more than 15 years ago. In this past year, he co-chaired an effort for the American Academy of Arts and Sciences about rebuilding democracy for the 21st century. He joined Democracy Unchained to talk about a few things, to remind us that we may be the very leaders we're seeking, and also to remind us of the importance of really recognizing one another's true humanity. Hi, I'm Eric Liu. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Citizen University. And the way I see it in our country right now, I think we have a great project uh, before us. And that project, uh, which we are blessed, I think, actually, to have to contend with, uh, to be alive and awake and aware to deal with, uh, is to create planet Earth's first mass multiracial democratic republic. There have been a lot of societies that have tried one, two, or three of those marks, but no one has successfully done all four to be at a mass scale in a way that is truly multiracial, not just in demographic fact, but in terms of actual inclusion and actual equality of voice and participation. 
to be democratic, not only in the sense that there are votes and elections, but that there's a culture of democracy, of the rule of law, of a sense of equal dignity and equal voice. And then a republic in which we are functionally able to choose representatives uh, to recreate that public, to reimagine and represent us. That endeavor uh, is audacious, it's huge, and frankly, we don't know whether we're gonna be able to pull it off. Uh, but whenever I meet people who are frustrated, even cynical about the State of the Union, uh, who think that our politics is completely broken, who look at the rise of uh, white power, who look at the ways in which um, so much of uh, uh, progress is met with uh, great retrenchment, um, I say, look, how lucky are we right now to be able to put to the test the proposition uh, that it might in fact be possible to make a mass multiracial democratic republic uh, and to show the world uh, what it might look like to make that work. I think what's gonna be called of each of us is <laughs> multiple things. Uh, and you know, in our work at Citizen University, um, we think about building a culture of powerful, responsible citizenship. And I really wanna emphasize the culture side of that because so much of the political conversation is about structure, structural reform, structural change, whether that is to uh, our criminal justice system, our immigration system, the electoral college, um, and all those structural policy debates are certainly uh, important. Uh, but our view is fundamentally that uh, when it comes to change and to shifts in consciousness and political possibility, culture precedes structure. Culture is upstream of structure. Culture, by which I mean our norms, our values, our narratives, our habits, our unspoken uh, agreements about what things mean, uh, that all shapes the frame and the parameters of the possible when it comes to structure. And so I think the first thing we've got to commit to doing is actually to be part of a change of culture. And what does that mean? That means taking responsibility at the most personal and local level to treat politics not as a spectator sport, not as a national reality TV show, uh, but as a question uh, of simply, how can I be useful right now? How can I be part of a solution where I am, uh, either physically or whatever community I may be connected to, even if it transcends uh, geography? Uh, and to be asking that question, what's my part? How can I be a pro-social contributor to community? That is our definition of citizen. When we say citizen university, powerful citizenship, we're not talking about documentation status. We're not talking about papers or passports. We mean this broader ethical sense of being a member of the body who recognizes that from the smallest acts and omissions all the way up to the big public things like casting a ballot, we, we get what we put into it. Uh, and so uh, we've got to start rebuilding citizen muscle and civic muscle uh, to be problem solvers, to be bridge builders, to be healers uh, of different divides um, where we live and among the people who see us. And what that requires, I think this is the second big piece of what it means to create a culture, is to commit to rehumanization. We have a politics that relentlessly, as a matter of incentives in uh, the political business and incentives in the media business, relentlessly demonizes and dehumanizes us. We do not see each other anymore. We see proxies for talking points. We see avatars uh, for an enemy worldview. And we've got to learn again how to rehumanize. And that starts with recognizing our own frailty, our own complexity, and imagining that it might be possible that that other person who we detest right now is also frail 
is also complex. Um, and until and unless we do that, we're just going to be in a continual perpetual, you know, either ping pong game or trench warfare um, of partisan politics. And, uh, and I think that piece of rehumanization is crucial. But the third and the final piece of creating this culture is to get literate in power, to understand that if you want to start taking responsibility, if you want to start rehumanizing people, um, then pretty quickly, uh, a certain word should evaporate from your vocabulary, and that word is they. The idea that, uh, well, who decided this? They decided this. I can't believe they decided uh, to stop counting votes. I can't believe they decided uh, that there should only be one polling place uh, in the entire district or state. I can't believe they decided uh, to cut bus, bus service uh, during a pandemic. I can't believe they decided uh, not to uh, ensure that uh, uh, frontline workers have all the PPE they need we have a deep epidemic of illiteracy and power in the United States. And when you don't really understand who's deciding and what's going on, you default to they, they. But there is no they, there's only we, various permutations of we. And we have a responsibility to become fluent and literate in power to understand just what the answers are to the central question of all civic power, which is who decides. And so, if we want to build this mass multiracial democratic republic, we've got to be able and willing to start taking more responsibility, to start rehumanizing each other, but also to understand power and the way that power is allocated and hoarded and can be recirculated if we start showing up in different ways. You know, one of the things about democracy that you come to understand in a fragile, fractured moment like this is that democracy works only if enough of us believe democracy works. It's that simple and that complicated, uh, that there is no magic constitution, there's no you know, beautiful set of words that will suddenly make democracy work, that it is a million-fold mutual agreement among all of us to say that, yeah, this thing means something, this thing is legit. And in quote-unquote normal times, you don't pay attention to the ways in which that million-fold mutual agreement uh, is unfolding. But in times like this, uh, where people are opting out of that, where people are out of cynicism or anger or sense of justified betrayal, uh, are saying, you know what, screw the system. The system is so rigged, I do not believe uh, anymore that democracy can deliver. In times like this, you realize just how fragile that faith is. And so, so much of our work at Citizen University is about working to rekindle a spirit of civic faith, to recognize that in the United States, we are bound together by nothing uh, but a, again, a flimsy set of words that adds up to a creed. And if we want to make liberty and justice for all meaningful, if we want to make equality, uh, equal justice under law uh, meaningful, uh, then we've got to show up in different ways and we've got to ask ourselves, what does it take? What are we willing to do? What are we willing to sacrifice in order to make those words mean something, to close the gap that has existed from before the founding to this present day, the gap between our creed and our deeds, to practice civic faith, to uh, engage in, as we say at Citizen University, uh, th this, this work of American civic religion uh, is to close that gap. This is just one small part of what I think is a widespread great awakening in civic life right now, where people are learning anew, uh, not only that we've got to take responsibility, that, but that we've got to do so not in isolation, in fellowship, in the presence of others, and others perhaps different from us, where we can make sense of how we come together and make sense of 
what it means to search out common purpose. Um, if and when we do that, that habit of showing up, of facing each other, um, is what can actually rekindle uh, that faith that is foundational to democracy. You know, there's no doubt that technology has changed how elections happen. It's not just that campaigns connect with voters online through video and social media. Tech platforms are where we do a lot of our engagement. It's where we share information with one another. We share news coverage, and it's where we argue about the issues. These tech platforms, though, they're almost entirely unregulated, which, as we all know, makes it very easy for misinformation and disinformation to be spread. Kevin Roos writes about these issues for the New York Times. In our seventh episode of Democracy Unchained, he spoke with author Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and Ben Scott of Reset.Tech. I'm wondering where you think we stand this year in relation to 2016. I mean, in 2016, social media obviously played a big role in our politics. We had Russia, you know, buying ads and trolling Americans. Um, we had, you know, these companies sort of belatedly realizing that they had a responsibility to safeguard elections, which is not something that they historically had had to think about. Right now, we are on the cusp of the third decade of the 21st century, the digital century. But we are marching naked into this century without the charters of rights, the legislative frameworks, the regulatory paradigms, and the new institutions that we need to assure that this century is compatible with democracy, that the digital future fulfills the aspirations of a democratic people. This failure is all the more resounding because when we look to the East, we see a country like China, an authoritarian state that has at least since 2010 been assiduous and intentional about designing a digital future that advances the form of government that it embraces. It advances authoritarianism, advances an authoritarian state as central to its, to its domestic as well as to its foreign policy. So the liberal democracies have failed to do the same. And as a result, we have created a void where democracy should be. What has filled that void is an economic logic that I call surveillance capitalism. It's an economic logic that is invasive, extractive, and parasitic. And the bottom line of this economic logic, uh, it takes our private experience, it, translate it translates it into behavioral data for processes of manufacture and sales. It requires economies of scale and economies of scope and economies of action, the ability not only to know everything, but also to influence and to a certain extent, control and modify human behavior. 2016 was the apotheosis of what I've just said. Um, in, in London, just a few weeks ago in, in the UK, on channel, the Channel 4 uh, investigative news team aired two nights of their um, very important, really frontier-making investigations of the Trump campaign in 2016. And, and specifically, they drilled down into the way the Trump campaign, they didn't invent anything. 
they used the everyday mechanisms and methods of surveillance capitalism, psychological micro-targeting, um, engineered social comparison dynamics, subliminal cues, real-time rewards and punishments, um, gamification. These are the mechanisms and methods of surveillance capitalism that Facebook relies on on an hourly and daily basis in order to get people to engage to the absolute maximum amount with their platform. The more engagement, the more behavioral data, economies of scale, the more varieties of behavioral data, economies of scope, the more they know about us, the more they use that data to come back with the targeting, the cueing, the tuning, the herding that actually intervenes in how we think, feel, and behave in the real world. The Trump campaign bragged about, Brad Parscale, the campaign manager, bragged about the campaign using Facebook better than anyone had ever used it. By what he meant was he used these mechanisms, specifically Channel 4 revealed they used these mechanisms to target black citizens in the United States, specifically in the swing states. They targeted black citizens in order to dissuade them from voting, to get them not to vote, to not exercise their democratic right, a malicious intervention, completely legal, using the bread and butter of surveillance capitalism, weapons in a new information war that would not exist were it not for surveillance capitalism, an attack surface that would not exist were it not for surveillance capitalism's ability to steal our personal experience as raw material for datafication, which has transformed our civilization in a few short years. In the year 2000, only 25% of all information was digitally stored. Surveillance capitalism was invented in 2001. By the year 2007, 97% of all digital information was digitally stored. That's Surveillance amazing. capitalism and its utilities to the world's intelligence agencies are wholly responsible for that transformation. And Ben, I want to ask you about that too, because I think one of the shifts that we've seen since 2016 is that I think lawmakers are much more attuned to the power that these platforms have. Do you think that the sort of lawmakers that you talk to, do they understand the stakes here? Do you think that the attention that they've been paying to social media since 2016 has improved our collective ability to harness, to sort of regulate these technologies? It has improved, but we've got a long way to go. We have seen a great deal of progress, particularly at the staff level. A lot of staff really understand the problem better now, but they understand the problem through the lens of the symptoms. And that's what we really learned in 2016 as a political culture is what the symptoms look like. We saw for the first time that actually most of the people in America, most of the time, don't rely on the same set of facts to understand the world. And that's a big problem if you're trying to run a successful democracy. Yeah, I, I wanna talk to you, I wanna follow up on that because I've been writing a lot and, and you know, reporting a lot on conspiracy theories this year and QAnon and some of the other ones that have really taken hold. But I'm curious, do you think this was destined to happen as a result of the decentralization of media, the kind of dissolution of the legacy media in favor of these platforms? Like, do you think that 
this was kind of always going to happen and it was just a matter of what form it was going to take? Or do you think there have been specific choices that led us to the place where, you know, some substantial percentage of Americans like are living in a completely different reality? I definitely don't think it was inevitable. In fact, it, it just wasn't that long ago that these technologies were heralded as the breaking the, the old gatekeepers of the media, that, that they were giving uh, new voices an opportunity to be heard, pluralizing the, 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 the media system, creating a more robust public debate. I think there's certainly a lot going on here, and I don't want to oversimplify. What we're seeing with the rise of Facebook and Google as the primary intermediaries through which most people are getting news and information is a completely new phenomenon. It's not just that we are getting more of what we self-identify as and choose. It's that we are being bombarded with ever more extreme versions of that. What's happening is that I'm, I'm, I'm leaning in a, in a direction where I'm critical and I don't trust the government and I'm fed information on a regular basis that reaffirms that belief. And it's coming from people that I, I trust and know. And it's coming from sources that I see so frequently that they come to be normalized. And over time, uh, my attention begins to wander. And so the algorithm of Facebook or YouTube begins to give me a little, a little bit extra, a little bit of a sharper dose of what I had before. Um, and over time, before long, I have been habituated to see things that I once would have thought were crazy now, now appear normal. We've always had crazy in the media system. There's always been fringe views, but those fringe views have not been dragged to the mainstream and amplified in ways that, that blew them up way out of proportion to what they actually are representative of people in the real world. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You take something that's fringe, you blow it up out of proportion, and pretty soon people are like, well, maybe that is normal. It looks like everybody's talking about that. It must be normal. It must be something that people are believing in. So therefore, if I believe in it, I'm not a crank. For our final segment, we return to where we began with our first episode, looking at the moral foundations of democracy, the way that choosing democracy is actually a moral choice, right? What I mean by that is it's a choice we make to put the best interests of the community ahead of our own self-interest. So we close by hearing about this choice from the Reverend Canon Kelly Brown Douglas. She's Dean of Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary in New York City and canon theologian of the Washington National Cathedral. Hi, my name is Kelly Brown Douglas. I am the canon theologian at Washington National Cathedral, as well as the dean of the Episcopal Divinity School in New York at Union Theological Seminary. It is so good to be a part of this program and this series as we examine what it means to call ourselves actually a democracy when I think of who we are as a nation and the claim that we have made indeed to be a democracy, I consider that claim actually a vision, an aspirational vision, something that we have committed ourselves to strive toward. That is that vision where there is freedom and justice for all. Now, of course, perhaps it goes without saying that we as a nation have not indeed reached that vision, which in fact means that we have yet to become the democracy that we claim to be. To call ourselves a democracy is first and foremost aspirational. 
The good side of that aspiration is that we're committed to it. Yet we have to always remember that we aren't there yet. And so on the way to indeed living into that claim, living into that vision, the road there always begins with those people, those communities who are on the underside of justice, those people who have had the least experience of this democratic vision. We must start with those people who indeed at any point in time would say we aren't a democracy because they have yet to experience the reality and even any small measure of that. When I think of our democracy, or at least our country's aspiration to be a democracy, when I think about that as a black woman in this country, I think of the fact that I am indeed the great granddaughter of a woman who was born into slavery. We called her Mama Mary. I knew Mama Mary. She died when I was perhaps six or seven years old. Now, any time I think of Mama Mary, I think of those persons who were born into slavery, who died in slavery, who never, ever, ever drew a free breath, never even believed they would ever draw a free breath. Yet, yet, they fought for freedom anyhow. They fought for freedom that they knew they would never experience, but a freedom they knew would be. They believed that this country, that this nation would indeed one day live into its greatest vision of being a nation where there was freedom and justice for all because they believed that that vision was guided by something beyond itself. And so they believed in the freedom that would be indeed the justice of the earth, this kind of transcendent freedom. And so it was that they fought for this nation to get on the ark, as Martin Luther King Jr. would say, get on the ark that bends toward justice because for them, that ark bent toward the justice that was the freedom of God. And so it is because, it is because I come from a people who fought for a freedom that they did not see, that I believe and must continue to fight for that very same freedom. Because while in fact we have yet to reach the highest aspiration of who we claim we can be, I know for a fact that if they had not fought for freedom, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. There are nine episodes of Democracy Unchained and one more in the works. There's so much we'd like to share with you. There was this amazing and uplifting conversation with Michael Eric Dyson. There was David Brooks and Sally Yates talking about moral courage. Latasha Brown, David Daly, and Desmond Mead talking about voter rights. Ganesh Sitaraman on just how great our democracy could become. 
there was a conversation on the role philanthropy should play, and more than a few on how we might begin to get money out of politics. Now, the election may be over, but the work is ahead of us. We hope that some of these conversations can help to chart the course. You can see all the episodes at democracyunchained.io. For the whole team at the City Club and for our partners at Democracy Unchained, thank you. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.